All right, ushers, uh, we're going to worship through offering. And as we do, I want to uh, start this morning with a little bit of an occupational question. So kids, um, our, our kids are with us this month, and so I want to ask you to consider a question. And in adults, there's going to be an adult version for you as well. Kids, the question for you as we jump in today is this. What do you want to be when you grow up? Like, what job are you sort of hoping for? If you could have any job in the world, what's the one you would pick? And adults or older youth, um, this will be a bit of a throwback question for you. What is the job you wanted to have when you were a fourth grader? So you can think all the way back to when you were a fourth grader and what you wanted to be when you grew up. Uh, Pastor Gabby and I are actually going to come around. We're going to get a few audience participation moment. If you've got an answer for us, throw your hand in the air. Um, if I catch you yawning, I'll just come straight to you uh, with the mic. And if, give me your answer. What do you want to be when you grow up? Or what did you want to be? Oh, right back here. I got one. Pastor Gabby. Uh-oh, I scared Autumn. All right, what do you got, sweetheart? A famous gymnast. A famous gymnast. Oh, like anyone in particular? No, just yourself. You'll just be like, you'll just like, you'll be the stand, you'll be the new gold standard. Anyone here ever dream of being a famous gymnast? No. All right, that's cool. That's good. You got someone, Pastor Gabby? Yeah. All right. I think when I was in fourth grade, I wanted to be a singer. All right, singer. What kind of singer? A good one. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you are a good singer, so that came true. Nice job. Any other singers, pop stars, or anything? All right. How about you, sweetheart? Um, I want to be a doctor when I grow up. Ooh, a doctor. That's cool. You can help people and, yeah, and help people who are sick feel better. That's great. Good work. That might happen for you. I could see it. You'd be an awesome doctor. I'd come to see you. Anyone, any other doctors in here? Oh, a couple doctors, people? All right. What do you got here? Uh-oh, front row. A football running back. Oh, a football running back. That sounds pretty good. Any other football running backs? Oh, man. What did you want to be when you were a fourth grader? A paleontologist. A paleontologist. Wow. That explains a lot about you. Any other paleontologists in here? Survey says? Uh, I don't know. Okay. You got another one? I want to be an interior designer. Ooh. That's cool. Interior designer. HGTV action right there. Any other interior designers? No? All right. Okay, who was over here? Who was raising? Did you want to say one? All right. I wanted to be a wrestler. A wrestler. Yeah, I think you could be a wrestler. That sounds good. Any other wrestlers? You know what's funny about me? When I was a first grader, not fourth, but first grader, I either wanted to be a pastor or a wrestler. One of those came true, so be careful, buddy. You never know what could happen to that wrestling dream. God will spin it on you. Um, All right, Pastor Gabby, one more over there. I want to be a Lego designer. Ooh, a Lego designer. Uh, Any other Lego designers? I feel like half the Intel people in here at some point were Lego designers, right? All right, hey, one last one that wasn't mentioned, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, How many in here either want to be or or wanted when they were a fourth grader to be a tax collector? Any wannabe tax collectors in here? Anna? (laughs) No, you didn't. Come on. Don't lie. 
Yeah, see, tax collector's never been a real popular uh, vocation throughout the history of the world. Not now. It wasn't back in Jesus' day either. However, at the very beginning, beginning of our story today, Luke tells us that that is actually the profession of our main character. And it is a significant part of the story. So let's jump in to Luke chapter 19. We're starting this morning in verse 1. Here's what Luke tells us. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. So right off the bat, Luke introduces us to our main character, uh, the main character of the story. His name is Zacchaeus. We learn that he's a tax collector, but he's not just any tax collector. He was a chief tax collector and he was what? He was wealthy. He had a lot of money. Now... We talked about this a few weeks ago, but just by way of review, uh, let me explain to you how the whole tax collector thing worked. Rome, which was the ruling empire uh, of the day, the the empire that ruled in Israel where Jesus was, Rome was interested in getting as much money as they possibly could out of all uh, the nations that they ruled over. Uh, and they had to wring like every cent out of, out of these nations because they had to support their army. They had to support their growing road system. They were constantly trying to expand and grow their empire. And so they needed every single cent to do it. And what they found was that it was far more effective to have natives collect the taxes than to do it themselves. In other words, they would recruit Israelites to collect taxes from their own people. And how the system worked was was like this. They would say, okay, here's the region, the region of Jericho or the region of Portland. Um, Bethany, Hillsboro, Cedar Mill, and Beaverton. That's the area. How much money do you think you could get if you were the tax collector uh, over that region? And people would bid. They'd say, I think I could get 50 million. Someone else would come and say, I could get 70 million. I could get 80. I could get 95. I could get 100 million if I was the tax collector over that area. And they would say, sold to the highest bidder. So the person who bid 100 million dollars would be on the hook now to collect 100 million dollars and then give it to the Roman government. And how you made money as a tax collector was this. It was anything above and beyond that you collected, you got to keep for yourself. So the, when you're a tax collector, the way you make money is by overcharging the people you are taxing for your own personal gain. And in this case, overcharging your fellow countrymen. And so knowing that Zacchaeus is a tax collector and that he's wealthy, that he's rich, we learn right away that he's gotten pretty good at overtaxing his very own countrymen for personal gain. Now, how do you think that made the people of Jericho feel about Zacchaeus? Is is Zacchaeus real popular around town? Does he have a lot of friends? No. The people of Jericho hate Zacchaeus. They despise him. He is a complete and total outcast. Every tax collector was. In fact, in Jesus' day, the religious leaders would compile lists, and they were lists of of jobs, of vocations, that were acceptable and unacceptable. And on the unacceptable lists, they would would range from jobs that were, you know, kind of weary, that you should kind of look out for, all the way down to jobs that you should not even consider. And on the list of jobs where you should be really careful before entering into this profession were things like, these are two jobs actually on that list, Be careful about being a butcher. Be careful about being a physician. 
And the reason the religious leaders were worried about those professions was because if you were a butcher or a physician, you were going to be tempted to cater to the rich and overlook the poor. Those are two positions where, where the rich people could really rise to the surface. And, and the religious leaders knew that would be bad for your heart and it would not align with the heart of God. And they said, so be real careful before you become a butcher or a physician. Next list, kind of further down, were jobs that maybe wouldn't tempt you to be immoral in any way, but they were just repugnant. They were just gross and nasty. And there's a whole long list of these. On that list um, was the job of dung collector. Actually, a job in Jesus' day to be a dung collector, the person who went around and collected dung. And the rabbi said, this is such a nasty job that you should avoid it. In fact, ladies, if your husband, if you married a guy and then he decided later to become a dung collector, they said, it's okay for you to leave him. Even God thinks it's okay for you, according to the rabbis, to leave a dung collector. This was such a popular notion that there was a song that had been written back then. Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be dung collectors. Um, And then there was the the final list, like the list of jobs that were the worst of the worst. And guess what profession was at the very top of that list? Pastor. That was actually top of the best jobs list, Greg, because of wonderful congregants like yourself that make it a joy to serve and preach. At the top of that list was not pastor, it was tax collector, The most hated and vile job of them all. And friends, if you want to get a sense of what it meant to be a tax collector and how people felt about them in Jesus' day, you have to think of tax collectors in terms of professions like drug dealers or robbers or terrorists. To fully understand this story, you have to understand just how hated and despised tax collectors were. And friends, for this reason, even though there was potentially a lot of money, a lot of power, a lot of privilege in being a tax collector, no kids in ancient Israel grew up dreaming of the day that they would be rejected by everyone in society and they could be a tax collector. It was not a very popular profession. So the question as we get into our story this morning is this. So then why? Why did he do it? Why does Zacchaeus become a tax collector? You know, it's a real interesting thing. In the ancient world, the meaning of a person's name was very significant. And parents would consider very carefully their child's name and what it meant. And often, their hopes and dreams for their child were wrapped up in the name that was given. Does anyone know what the name Zacchaeus meant? The Hebrew name Zacchaeus means clean and pure. See, Zacchaeus was just a little kid whose parents dreamed of him being a clean and pure and righteous member of society. And so the question again is, what happened to him? How did he land in this place? How did Zacchaeus end up in this unclean, impure, despised and hated profession? Well, I think Luke, in verse 3, gives us a clue. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. What is the standout 
physical attributes so prominent about Zacchaeus that Luke goes out of his way to point it out to us. What is the most well-known fact about Zacchaeus? He was... Actually, the technical term is he was we. You know the song, don't you? Let's sing it. Let's do it. Come on, for the children. I feel like, I feel like Pastor Paul and Pastor Bethany need help in teaching our children the scripture. So let's sing it. Pastor Jerry, start us off. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little... This is the weirdest church ever. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree. Come on, high schoolers. And he said, Zacchaeus, you come down. Why? For I'm going to your house today. For I'm going to your house today. In the song, he goes twice. You see, um, Zacchaeus was short. Zacchaeus was wee. Now, let me ask you this. What is the thing that kids in our world aspire to most in terms of height? Yeah. I mean, how many of you have ever heard of a kid who comes home from the first day of school and runs in the door and says, Mom, guess what? I am the second shortest kid in class. Does that ever happen? No. No, kids want to grow. Kids want to be... Tall. This is actually a picture of the wall in my house. It's kind of hard to see, but every single year in my home, on our kids' birthdays, we measure them and we put a mark on the wall and we put their ages next to it. And um, I take this so seriously that I transferred their heights from our house in California when we moved here. I measured meticulously and transferred it to a wall in our home here in Portland. And you can see there all of their heights and the various ages. Um, and... Every single year, they get up to the wall and they really want to have grown a ton. Um, and mostly what the younger ones are looking for is to be taller than their older siblings at that same age. And so there's a, there's a little bit of a rivalry going on in this moment. And this year, we, we, had, we have a couple kind of big moments in terms of height. My son turned 10 this year, and on his 10th birthday... He actually lapped his sister. He was a smidge taller at 10 than she was even at 11. Sorry, Skylar. And that led to a lot of trash talk in our family. Um, However, Skylar's going to get revenge this year because she turns 13 in one month. And on this birthday, we're all quite sure that she will now be taller than mom. And so we say, oh, Skylar, you might be the shortest in the family. And she says, no, I won't. Mom will be the shortest in the family, right? But why is this a big deal? Why do do they so badly want to be taller? Because, right, to be tall is to to win. To be tall is is a good thing. And this is why someone in our house is always the clear winner. (laughs) What kind of parent would do this? Would, like, just crush their kids' dreams every year? Remember who the tallest is, kids, and you'll never catch me. You know, it's like, um, that's bad parenting right there. Don't do what your pastor does. Now, let me pause here for a minute and say this. There is nothing, nothing at all intrinsically good or better about being tall versus being short. If anything, we've seen um, in the most recent Olympic Games that being short can be a pretty powerful and amazing thing. 
The Bible says this, a person's value has absolutely nothing to do with their height. A person's value has absolutely nothing to do with any physical attribute you may have or not have. No matter how tall, short, fat, thin, you know, how much hair you have, how good looking society says you are, how big or small your feet are, it doesn't matter. No matter what your physical attributes are, your value before God is exactly the same as everyone else. That's what the scriptures say. Nevertheless, in our world, the message comes through loud and clear. To be tall is to be good. That's what you want. So in this regard, how is Zacchaeus doing? How has he done throughout his entire life? Not good. He's always at the bottom of the list. Zacchaeus has always been the runt of the litter. And I don't know if you remember this when you were a kid, but kids can be very cruel in the way that they treat people, other kids who are different, who don't look the same, especially other kids who are small. You see, friends, it may be that Zacchaeus decided a long time ago that someday he would show everybody that he would, in fact, become a big man in the only way he knew how. And so he became a tax collector. And not just an ordinary tax collector. He was good at it. He was, Luke tells us, the chief tax collector. Zacchaeus was such a successful tax collector that he had tax collectors working for him. This means that a vast majority of the very large city of Jericho was paying taxes to Zacchaeus. And friends, I've, I've wondered, I've read this passage this week, I've wondered that you know, maybe when Zacchaeus, maybe when he collected his taxes with the entire force of the Roman army behind him or walked into his first century Jericho villa and stood out on the patio overlooking the city, or maybe when Zacchaeus traveled down the road in his fancy state-of-the-art chariot, maybe, just maybe, Zacchaeus thought to himself, look who's somebody now. Look who's calling the shots now. Look who's important now, all you folks who used to pick on me in middle school. You see, friends... Maybe the first thing we learn from Zacchaeus is this. The power insecurity has to drive our lives. That's what we're talking about today. We're talking about insecurity and the power that it can have in my life and yours. I don't know if you know this, but insecurity is an extremely powerful thing. In fact, it's what drives much of our society. It's what drives most television commercials. In fact, every day people spend money, buy products, make decisions, choose careers, invest exorbitant amounts of time and energy. And if we could see what's under the surface, what's driving all of this, so often I believe we would discover it's our insecurities that guide and direct our lives. You see, Zacchaeus has always been on the outside. But at some point he thought, if I could just get enough wealth, if I could just gain enough power, if I could just find enough success, then my insecurities will maybe finally go away and I'll find meaning and purpose and fulfillment and peace in this life for my soul. Friends, I, I don't know where your insecurities lie. Maybe your insecurities have nothing to do with height. But every single one of us, every single person in this room has some insecurities. We're all insecure about at least something. 
And if we're not careful, if we're not honest, if we don't identify what it is that we're insecure about, just like Zacchaeus, we can find ourselves overcompensating and allowing our insecurity to become the driving force of our lives instead of God. So let me ask you this morning, the first question this passage is begging of you and me, where does insecurity live in you? What are the things about you that you wish were different, that you are always trying to change or overcompensate for or overcome? You see, Zacchaeus has spent his entire life trying to prove that he is somebody, that he's important, that he matters, that he's not just the short kid. And he's done it by taking a position of of power and wealth. But in this moment today, in our story today, we come across Zacchaeus in the time when he has finally learned this. There is a hole in his heart that money cannot fill. There, There is a longing in his soul that no amount of power or position can satisfy. Friends, I don't know what it is you're using to try and fill your life and compensate for your insecurities, but at some point, you have to stop, you have to ask, is it working? Have I found the peace and satisfaction and joy that my heart longs for? Will it last? Or when whatever I'm using to kind of overlay goes away, will all of my insecurities still just be there? Zacchaeus is asking that question today. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. All right, how many in this room, it's been a great summer, hasn't it? Just, I mean, anyone else here depressed that it's coming to an end? Does it officially not end till the end of September here? Do we get an extra month? Well, okay, we can tell ourselves that. It's been a great summer. How many in this room, by show of hands, have climbed a tree this summer? At least once. Hold them up and keep them up. Look around the room. Now, there's a few adults with their hands up, right? But most of the folks... Good job, Doug Crane. Most of the folks with their hands up in this room are what? Kids. Why? Because climbing trees is kids stuff. That's what kids do, right? It's for kids. Now, if that's true in our very informal, casual society, in the very formal, traditional society of first century Israel, it was even more so. In fact, here's the truth. Adults didn't climb trees. For a grown man to climb a tree in ancient Israel, it would have been a very humiliating thing. But friends, even more so for Zacchaeus. Why? Because for him... This moment when he climbs a tree, it's a, it's a statement. It's a moment of truth. What is Zacchaeus doing when he climbs up that tree? He's acknowledging before the entire city, in front of the entire crowd, the thing that he has been running and hiding from his entire life. The fact that he's short. Do you see how in this moment when Zacchaeus climbs up into that tree, his insecurity is on full display for everyone in that crowd to see? I mean, imagine the scene. You know how the people feel about Zacchaeus anyway, right? They hate him. They despise him. They don't like him. They're looking for anything to say against him. Any way they can possibly cut him down, they will. And now he climbs a tree so he can get a view of Jesus. Imagine people in the crowd. Did you see Zacchaeus? He's so short he had to climb a tree. Ha ha! Right? 
And Zacchaeus is just owning it here. He just climbs right up. He doesn't care. Here's why. Maybe for the first time in Zacchaeus' life, he wants healing more than hiding. Maybe for the first time in Zacchaeus' life, he wants mending for, for his soul instead of just managing of his insecurity. Friends, you know one of the worst parts of sin and insecurity is that it does not want to be seen. It does not like to be in the light. It does not like to be on display. And part of the trap, part of the sickness that is in us is often that we are willing to live with huge problems in our lives, enormous amounts of sin, gigantic insecurities, as long as other people don't find out about them. As long as we can hide, we'll be okay. So the question is, how about you today? Are you more concerned with hiding your sin your junk, your insecurities? Or have you come to the place like Zacchaeus where instead of hiding, you'll take healing? Because hiding and healing never go together. You'll have to choose one or the other. Friends, when Zacchaeus climbs that tree, he's saying, I am tired of hiding. I need healing. I'm tired of trying to manage my insecurities. I need honest, authentic God mending for the hurt and pain and sin in my soul. Friends, what does it look like for you to climb a tree today? Let me suggest to you this. I think it, at the very least, means getting honest. I think it means giving access to the deep, dark, broken, insecure parts of your life to at least a few people who can help you see yourself and move towards Jesus. Who in your life knows about and has freedom to speak into the most raw, sensitive parts of your soul? Who in your life are you willing to open up to even about your insecurities? Is there anyone? Are there people like that that know all of it? The whole truth? Even the stuff that's hard for you to admit to yourself? Which is a higher priority for you today? Help or hiding? So Zacchaeus is in a tree. He's finally said, I choose real help for my soul over insecurity, cover-up, overcompensation, and hiding. And in this moment of humility and transparency, Zacchaeus meets Jesus. He is now going to come face to face with the Savior, with the gospel, with the good news that he is loved and accepted by God and Jesus. And at the very end of this story, at the very end of this encounter, what Jesus is going to tell him is this, verses 9 and 10. I'm going to skip to the end and I'm going to come back. Jesus is going to say to him, Today salvation has come to this house, to this man, because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. He's now no longer just a part of a people group. He is now a child of the Most High God. For the Son of Man, Jesus says, came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came to take broken, insecure people like Zacchaeus and give them life and hope and healing and redemption. That is the great news. And so the question for us for the rest of the morning is this. How do you trade in your insecurities for the gospel? How do you trade in letting your insecurities drive and lead and direct your life and attitudes and behaviors for 
the gospel for salvation, for the good news of Jesus to be on the wheel of your life. How do you do that? And I'll suggest to you that our passage today tells us this, four things about the gospel we must know that we must embrace in order for it to take the place of our insecurities as the driving force of our lives. Here's the first one. When Jesus reached the spot, the tree where Zacchaeus was, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down and at once and welcomed him gladly. Friends, the first thing we need to understand about the gospel is that it is absolutely free. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to deserve it. There is nothing you can do to earn or deserve God's love in any way. If you think you can, or if you're still trying to, then you don't understand and you don't have the gospel. Because the good news isn't that Jesus will do most of the work, but you have to do a little. The good news is that Jesus does it all. What I love about this encounter with Jesus and Zacchaeus is Jesus comes up to him and he doesn't say this. He doesn't say, Zacchaeus, word on the street is that you're a cheat and you're a liar and that you're a swindler and that there's tons of people in this city that you owe money to. So here's what I need you to do. Apologize, pay him back, and then come see me and we'll talk. It's not what Jesus says at all. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house right now. In fact, he says, I must stay at your house. Do you see what Jesus does here? It's extremely rude. He invites himself over. (laughs) Right? He says, I'm coming over, Zacchaeus. I'm headed your way. You see, one of the things about the gospel that sometimes I think we, we miss just slightly is we're constantly telling people, asking people, inviting people. We're saying to them, invite Jesus into your life. Invite Jesus into your life. And that's almost true. And there's certainly an aspect where where Zacchaeus has to be receptive to what God wants to do. But what the gospel says is this. Jesus is inviting himself into your life. Will you let him in? Not will you pursue Jesus, but he is desperately already pursuing you and he longs to give you for free right now all the love and grace and acceptance that your heart and soul are longing for. Friends, the first thing we see about the gospel is that that it is free. If it is anything but free, then you do not have the gospel, you have religion, and that is just one more place that will foster insecurity in your life. How many of you have ever felt insecure about your faith, about your walk with God? I'm raising my hand because I'm one. Those are moments when I forget the gospel. Those are moments when I have religion, not Jesus. The first thing about the gospel is that it is free. Second thing, it's pervasive. Jesus wants into Zacchaeus' life, but not just part of his life. What does Jesus say? He says, I'm coming home with you, Zacchaeus. Will you bring me home? Now, what most scholars believe here is that Jesus actually goes to Zacchaeus' house Not just for tea, not just for a chat, not just even for dinner, but that he actually lives there for a while. He stays over for at least one night. And the message in this story is that Jesus wants into not just part of your life, but into every nook and cranny of your life. He wants to come in and he wants to transform not just part of you, but all of you. He wants to change everything. The way you spend your money, your thought life, your family life, your financial life, the way you do friendships. And ironically, what we're going to notice about Zacchaeus here at the end of the story is that the the first place where Zacchaeus is transformed is where? 
work. Good job. Good singer and good answer giver right there. Nice job. His work is what's transformed. He, the gospel moves in on his life and he says, guess what? He doesn't say, I'll go to church every week. He doesn't say, I'll do devotions every day. I'll pray more, God, now. He says the first thing that will change about him is how he engages at work. You see how pervasive the gospel is? You can't segment it out. You can't keep it over here in church life. You can't just let it bleed into your family life and just do your own thing at work. Friends, the gospel wants to be a part of every inch of you. The gospel is pervasive. You see, the gospel says, for Jesus to come home with you, you don't have to change anything. But if he does come home with you, he'll change everything. Number two, number three, the gospel's scandalous. Verse seven, all the people saw this. All the people saw Jesus going home with Zacchaeus and what? Began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Let me tell you why this is scandalous. This is scandalous in two ways. First of all, it's scandalous because of who Jesus will associate with. Jesus will associate with the most wretched, vile, despicable, unholy, unrighteous sinners in the world. Isn't that crazy? What's the message here? The message here is that he'll even associate with you. Right? Right? See, if you really understand yourself, you'll understand the message here is, oh, I'm just like Zacchaeus, and you're just like Zacchaeus. I'm not a tax collector, but if you were to look inside my heart and mind and soul, you'd find the same junk in me as you find in him. Do you see the scandalous nature of the gospel? God loves, God accepts, God will even forgive someone as wretched and vile as you. Printed on the front page, that's a scandal. Second part of this. this, this is amazing to me. Why are the people grumbling? Like, why are they grumbling? Here's why I think they're grumbling. Because they've, they're grumbling at how gracious and loving and accepting and willing to engage with sinners Jesus is. Like, wow, that is just like too gracious for my comfort zone. That's too loving and accepting for what I'm comfortable with. And I think the question that we have to ask as Christ followers is this. When was the last time someone grumbled because of your extravagant graciousness? When was the last time someone looked at your life and went like, well, that's just over the top. I mean, I don't think, I mean, that's just, that's like love to, that's like love to the, to the nth degree. No one should love that much. No one should accept that much. No one should be that gracious. That's... Oh, those Christians, those people at Cedar Mill, they're just always loving, accepting someone so fully. I mean, when was the last time people looked at your life and said, this is way too gracious for me, I can't accept it? It's just a tough question. Because I, but I think the gospel, when it really takes root in our hearts, we understand the scandalous love we've received, and then it changes us to be scandalous love and acceptance offerers to the world. Amazing. All right, last point. Uh, the final point is this. The gospel is transforming. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord! I go back to Pastor Jerry's story from earlier, right? It's almost like you, you know, when your kids do something and they want you to see it. Look, Dad! Look, Dad! Not because they're trying to get you to love them, but because they know that you love them, right? Look at me! I want you to watch me. I want you to watch me go off the diving board again. Right? See the spin I can do. And you're like, that was amazing, Right? Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. You see, the gospel 
transforms us, not just from something, but into something. It doesn't just like, it doesn't just come along and say, alright, here's the good news. All your bad behaviors get to stop. It's not the gospel. The gospel says, guess what? I'm going to take all of the, of the awful, sinful, broken things in you and I'm going to transform them, form them into the things of God. The gospel is so practical, friends. Do you know how hard it is to simply stop something once you've acquired a habit, a habit of doing it? Have you ever tried to do this? Have you ever tried to like stop a bad behavior? And just say, like, I'm not going to do that anymore. Like, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to complain. We did this a few months ago, right? I'm not going to complain anymore. In fact, tomorrow, I'm not going to complain at all because complaining is bad and I shouldn't do it. And God loves me, right? So I'm not going to do it. How does that go? It doesn't work. It maybe lasts for a little while, but eventually you go back to being who you are. However, if you adopt the behavior of encouraging, if you, if you, if you receive the practice of gratitude, and you just say, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna embrace gratitude. You know what happens to complaining? It withers away. Not because you tried hard to stop doing it, but because you embraced something else. You see, God wants to turn you into something, not just from something. It's why gossip is hard to stop if you just decide to stop gossiping. You can't do it. Why? Because gossiping's fun. It's enjoyable. You really like it. That's why you do it. However, if you decide to, to cultivate the practice of affirmation and encouragement, gossip will wither away. See, Zacchaeus could have said, God, I'm going to now like stop collect. I'm going to stop being greedy when I collect taxes, and I'm just going to do the right thing, right? And that would have lasted for a while. But I'm pretty sure his sinful heart would have led him right back into the pattern of greed. And so, what does Zacchaeus do? Instead of just stopping something, he embraces something. He embraces radical generosity. He says, "I'm giving half of all I have to the poor, and I'm going to repay back everyone who I've cheated." What? Four times. He didn't have to do that. The Old Testament law said that he only had to repay them what he took from them plus 20%. He was only required to give 20%, but what does he decide to do? He decides to receive the practice of radical generosity so that he can be changed. This is why Paul, when he talks about transformation in the Bible, is always not just saying like, stop doing this and stop doing that and take off this. He always adds what? Take off this, take off this, take off this with... Put on this and put on this and put on this because the gospel is transforming you from something and to something. Don't forget the second half because the gospel is always transforming. Friends, the point of this story is that something will drive your life. If you're not intentional about it, it will be your insecurities. It will be the things that you most don't like about yourself or the things you most think you should be or the fears and worries you have that your parents may be sowed into you. In some way, your insecurities will get a hold of the steering wheel of your life unless you give the steering wheel of your life to the gospel. This is probably the number one thing that God's been teaching me in this last year. And it's a little bit humiliating for me to say this because it is so basic. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, I am finally now starting to live into this a little. This is, this is what God's teaching me these days. You're a good, good father. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. That's who I am. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a father. I'm not primarily 
a son or a community member, first and foremost, above everything else, I'm just a guy who's loved by his God, who's embraced by his God, who's accepted by his God. And friends, the question is, how does that change us? How does that transform us? And I, and I think here's the answer. When I get into a situation, the question God's been asking me to, to consider is, do you really believe the gospel, Dave? Do you really believe that the God of the universe loves you and accepts you so much that he would send his one and only son to die on a cross for you? And if you do, then how, in this moment, should you respond right now? If God's love and grace and acceptance really has the will of your life, then what are you going to do with that emotion? What are you going to do with that feeling? How are you going to react to that person? What words are you going to say? What if you actually lived your whole life through the lens of God's scandalous love and acceptance for you? You see, friends, that's Zacchaeus. He's traded in his insecurities for the gospel. And now God's love is guiding his life. That's what Christ longs for you. So go today, take your insecurities off the wheel, and say, God, I'm going to choose to believe again today that you love me, that you accept me, that you are so, so infatuated with me that you gave your one and only son, and I'm going to allow that truth to be on the steering wheel of my life. If you live from that place, you will, like Zacchaeus, find the freedom of God's redeeming grace. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this little man with huge faith, for this, this small guy who realized that you could do big things for him and through him. Thank you for the way that you take people who are completely off track and you pull them back to yourself because, God, that gives me hope for me. Continue to remind me, my family, this church, God, how much you love us. And may that be the guiding force of everything we say, everything we think, everything we do, and all that we are. That is our prayer together, God. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.